Hi, everybody. I'm Sunny, and this is We Gotta Talk, a live weekly digital talk show and podcast where we like to dig deep. Real talk, big topics. Now, let's dig in. You guys, if you could have been here for the past 12 minutes of us troubleshooting getting this interview started, it's hysterical and it is proof that the universe has its own timing. I cannot wait to introduce you to today's guest. We're going to speed things up a little bit because we lost a little time, but his story is so compelling and I cannot wait for you to meet him. Rach, let's pop up John as we introduce you. John, you have a very long bio, but I feel compelled to read some of this back to you with you with you here because I don't want to leave you literally in the dark while I read this. Okay, we talked about this guys on Instagram earlier this week, but it was hard to sort of condense this into one small theme. We're calling this week's theme um, money, the good, the bad, the evil. Uh, today's guest is testament to the incredible power that wealth can bring, but also the crazy complicated problems that it can as well. So John LaFave is a writer, musician, philanthropist, and fan of the Oxford comma. Born in 1951, he's been a taxi driver, a lawyer, a convict, and one third of a billionaire. In 2003, um, his the website he founded netteller anyteller.com which was an online money transfer business went public on the london stock exchange with a market capital of almost two billion dollars then in 2007 he was arrested by the u.s department of justice which alleged three 20-year offenses money laundering racketeering and conspiracy long story short he pled guilty to the offense of conspiracy to promote illegal gambling spent 45 days in a Manhattan facility and came out to, John, I'm going to kind of condense here, but try to change the world, for lack of a better term, right? Well, that's what we're all trying to do ever since the day we were born, right? <laughs> I think so. But your way of changing the world has, has changed since 2003. You know, you, you, you started down one path and ended up in quite a different spot. Tell us a little bit about the, the heyday of netteller.com and, and how you landed there to start. It was a pretty dizzying ride. I had the opportunity came up from a, a client of mine when I was practicing law, Steve Lawrence, and a 16 year old guy he was working with, that was working for him. Um, he the, the kid Jeff Natland was uh, he told Steve he was gambling on the internet last night, and, and Steve asked him, "Well, how did you pay for it?" And he says, "Well, you know, with my dad's credit." <laughs> and um, that became um, you know they, they that they started to talk about you know. Uh, Somebody brought some, you know, some maturity, responsibility, reliability to the uh, money transfer side of online gaming. That, that might be a good little business model. Yeah. And so, and so uh, they started that. And Steve asked me if I could help husband it along a little bit while, uh, you know, he had other jobs. I didn't. I was only a lawyer. <laughs> and, um, you know, we started out uh, a couple of guys in a huge office, you know, 2000 square feet and kind of a, you know, um, what do they call them? Uh, it doesn't matter when you know one of those old brick offices and um we uh never we never spent a dime on advertising but within about um six months we we're you know cash flow financing and uh you know we working 18 hours a day and um you know after about a year we were transferring you know i don't know uh a million dollars a month on online between um, american gamblers and uh you know online offshore gaming sites it was mostly in those days it was mostly um you know sports betting and then after, after we got going then poker came along and that just made it huger 
Okay, um, wait, John, I have to hop yep. in here. Because those of us not familiar or intricately familiar with law or um, and any of what's legal and what's not, explain what your company was doing precisely that was legal, what wasn't, and when it crossed the line between the two. What we were doing was we were functioning like PayPal functions, but we were doing it primarily to service the online gaming industry. People connected their bank accounts to our bank account, transferred money back and forth by electronic funds transfer. And um, we uh, brought some uh, immediacy to both ends of the, of the finance side of the online gaming uh, industry. When it, when it started out, people had to send a check to Central America. And then, you know, if, if they won six, six weeks later, they'd get a check that was drawn on some American or some Costa Rican bank account. It would take, you know, however many days. To, we, but by the time we were done, you could put money in, uh, get up Sunday morning, put money into your net teller account and, uh, you know, use it to gamble on two football games. And by two o'clock in the afternoon, um, you could come out and stick your uh, cash card in the machine and take the money back again. Was so, that always illegal from the beginning? <laughs> well, I don't know if any of that part was illegal. The part that was alleged to be illegal was supporting online gaming. You know, then most of the states, in the United States, gambling is illegal um, right. unless you're unless you're the government, right? The two end states, Nevada and New Jersey, uh, license out gambling. So um, it was uh, some some people think that we were uh, you know busted uh, primarily for. Um, you know, in, interfering with the, uh, you know, the hotel lobby, <laughs> yeah. you know, anyone's money, John, you know, rules are rules, right? So we can keep the people that need to be rich, rich, right? <laughs> Other people think that the, uh, they came out at us because, um, you, you know, because, you know, laws are crime, you know, by gambling is a crime. We actually think that what happened was a couple of young lawyers, uh, in, you know, got, got out of law school <laughs> and they said, what about this online gaming thing? You know, if we, um, you know, if we took a run at that, you know, we could get some, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do the prosecuting, you do the, uh, you know, defending and, we'll, you, you know, we'll make some good fees for our firms. In the meantime, um, you know, we'll, we'll possibly make some huge forfeitures for the government. And, and that's what they did. And we wound up forfeiting, uh, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars, $240 million. And, uh, and, wow. um, and very, very quickly after that, um, you know, after they did us, that was seven years, six years later, but very quickly after they did that, they found out that there were more forfeitures if they went after Wall Street. And, and then they would start there. But it was, it was largely forfeiture driven, right? And one of the interesting things I want to share with you guys is that in the United States of America, more, more or less, the ultimate beneficiary of all criminal activity is the Justice Department. <laughs> sooner or later. I mean, so, we're talking about going after Wall Street, even when we literally have Wall Street in our grasp, as we saw how many of your years ago with the housing crisis, that there, that there is no punishment, there is no follow through, there's no 45 days in a, in a facility for the people who were um, leading all of the tremendous loss of that era. So you see, you know, a group of relatively small group of guys doing what you're doing, not saying bad isn't bad, regardless of its scope. But it does make you question the motives behind the system. Sometimes we were, uh, we were uh, Canadian, we were an offshore company to the United States alien. And um, every, you know, every financial transaction organization, in the United States was doing exactly what we were doing all the credit cards, FedEx, everybody, but they took it on at us because it's hard to, you know, most of those guys own, you, you, you know, you, you, you know, um, you know, they own shares in First United and that, and the companies that do all the money transfers. Mm -hmm. Anyways, they found us and they, and they, they, as being foreigners and so kind of a little less um, politically difficult than, for instance, suing Citibank for doing what we were doing. But we, everybody was doing the same thing. 
Okay, let's talk about, got, yeah. there's so much to get to here. Um, I sure. really want to talk about the, the, the moment of redemption, for lack of a better term. We mentioned at the intro here, you did plead guilty to the offense of conspiracy to promote illegal gambling. You ended up serving um, only 45 days. I say only as someone who's never spent time in a facility. I'm sure that wasn't just an only situation, but it was the same facility where El Chapo is now being held, where Jeffrey Epstein was. Um, what what hits you the moment you walk into that into those doors? Well, that was a that was a hell of an experience. I wasn't my first time to the rodeo. I was busted when I was seventeen for selling uh, LSD to police that were dressed up like hippies. That was nineteen sixty nine, and so I, you know, I had cut my teeth on that already. But I'd, I'd repented myself of all of that, and then you know, gone to law school and everything else. And then I finally um, wound up in this position, but. Um, you know, really for me, it was just a wonderful experience. I was shaken up pretty badly. My daughter was in the courtroom and they made me take off my shoelaces and my belt and, wow. and pass them to my wife in case I was going to hang myself over a 45-day beef. But How um, was that time, John, if I could just hop in and ask, because that's something I hadn't considered was uh, an older child or family witnessing this. Oh, she was an adult. She was 30 at the time. But still, okay. So you 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 sent your sentence. You turn over your shoelaces. Your the potential to harm yourself. Items. You're ushered into this building. What's it like in those walls? I mean, no one no one knows. It's all it's all black. Literally all <laughs> there, black. There were there were ninety six people on my wing, and like um, you know, eighty six of them were black guys, um, and, and most of the rest of them were Asians. Um, and uh, there was a me and and another Italian guy. <laughs> What, what what types of crimes were most of these people convicted of? Oh, uh, drugs, um, you know, fighting, you know, having guns, those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah and, a couple of guys were in for murder. They were, I mean, there, there were some proper criminals in there, but, you know, I'm going to say by uh, I, uh, 90 percent of them were uh, just innocents caught by the caught by, you know, their society, really. Yeah. It's interesting. I, um, you know, I hear of the facility where Jeffrey Epstein was, and I'm thinking white collar crime. I'm thinking it's like an easier joint, you know, enough type of place where you have to like uh, scratch and claw. It's like the Martha Stewart experience, for lack of a better term. Was it not like that? Is that what you're saying? No, no, no. My when I came in, there was a, um, a guy named. Um, oh, it doesn't matter. He, he, he was. He turned out to be a great chess player, and I was playing chess with him one day. And um, I said, to, I told him my bunkie, Sam, the guy I was shared my cell with, he said, Sam tells me that there's no gang guys in here, you know, they all go, they send them all somewhere else. And, you know, he, he kind of leans back and folds his arms and says, your bunkie? And I go, yeah. And he says, he blood. Oh, my. <laughs> like, as in the gang? So, yeah, he was in the, he was in the, you know, he was a blood guy. And all and and then and you know what turns out I'll be quick about this because we don't have any time. But what they do is check on the way in to see if you've got any problems. You know, so if you got you know, can I? They get they ask you for seps and seps are separations. So if you're blood, you go in there. You can't say I'm blood because that's admitting the crime of racketeering. But you can say I can't be with no you know. What's what the other one? Crips. I can't be. I can't be with no Crips. <laughs> and then they put you in. So all of the gangs got all of the gang guys that were on my range were blood. Yeah, and, and well, you more. were blood. You were a temporary blood for the moment you were. So in. there was there was no Martha Stewart about it. No, <laughs> no, I, I see Manhattan. I'm thinking, how tough of a clink can this really be in the middle of the city? But what I'm hearing from you is it was legit. I mean, before we move on, because I think your story. I don't want to focus too much on the lowest of the lowest point of your story. There's so much um, redemption and sort of. Um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? Like um, great things that dawned on you since leaving. But I do want to know what a typical day in a facility like that is like. Are they screaming, waking you up at whatever time o'clock? Or what's the food like? Did you see fights? Blow down. The food is. Uh not very good <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you can get up at six if you want and have breakfast or if you want you can sleep it's it's quite noisy everybody yells and screams they've all got these little headphones on with you know they walk walk with walkmans you can listen to the radio or listen to the tv or whatever but it's it's super noisy and i uh you know i had earplugs in but um more you know most of the people that were there were there uh, on on appeal or on bail awaiting trial so they were on best behavior so on that basis it was pretty it was pretty chill you know they um most of the guys didn't want to misbehave because they had things to achieve while they were there they they you know they they brought us in from you know all over you know they bring, bring people in from all over but this this it was a whole it was basically a holding place for people who were being processed by uh, courts in downtown manhattan and then they'd send them out to the other prisons afterwards you see so most yeah. of them were on really good behavior but it was really noisy um, everybody played cards. You know, I just stayed in my cell most of the time and read books. And Sam, my bunkie, looked out for me. He says, who's that guy? He's too good for us. He stays out there. And he says, he just reads his books because you guys are so noisy. <laughs> so you don't run into any serious trouble, right? No, I mean, I, I'm no. not trying to relive any traumas, but I, anything. No, you, I, could, I could have gotten in trouble. But the only way to get in trouble in that kind of a situation is by pretending that, you know, you're better than the rest of them. And you're right. not. Everybody's the same, right? Yeah, well, I yes something I say quite frequently, not relating to jail and you know, <laughs> there, but everybody's the same, uh, which really cuts to the core of your, your message now. So you, you get out, you go from the highest of the high, ultimate, uh, what many would consider the peak of success, financial success, um, the ability to provide for your family, falling to the lowest of the low, where you're literally stripped of your rights for a period of time. And you come out and your first revelation is what? Well, um, it was, you know, it wasn't really that kind of an epiphany for me, Sonny. You know, I was, I, I came into it pretty prepared because I, you know, I had been, you know, I was 55, right? I was, I, mean, I, was, I was a grown up guy and I've had lots of experience and I, you know, 45 days, you know, I, I knew from when I was 17 that if you're doing 45 days, the guys in prison say, man, I can do that standing on my head. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, you know, it, it was, um, but when I came out, I just decided to carry on doing what I was doing uh, the best I can. Uh, the FBI guys asked me in interviews one day, you know, um, what are you going to do when you get out of here? And I told him, you know, I said, you know, not, not this, you know, uh, and he said, what's your partner going to do? And, uh, you know, I said, you know, I'll, pro I'll probably just, you know, play music and sing music, you know, but what's your partner Steve going to do? And he says, oh, he wants to be a billionaire. So I don't know what he's going to do. But Somehow in that case. <laughs> and then, then the FBI guy, Roy, he leans back and he says, well, some people want to be Jimmy Buffett and some people want to be Warren Buffett. Oh, I love that. That's amazing. What a line. So it, was, it was cordial. You know, I mean, those guys are all professionals. They were, the, right. the cops were fine. And, you know, they, they treated me like a gentleman most of the time. And I, you know, it was, it, was, it, was, it was, for me, it was a wonderful experience, Sonny. Who gets to see Manhattan that way? Well, oh, I God. did. I <laughs> I'm good not seeing it that way. It was a wonderful experience for you. I think there's there's a lot at play probably there too. I mean, you're an older, outside, successful person who comes in. You're white. There's white privilege there too. I mean, what the experience you have, I, I feel that you're fortunate to be able to walk out there 
walk out of there with with a with a concrete lesson and a, and a mission and a desire to change whereas so many people and i'm Absolutely. sure you have, yeah you have strong feelings about this too um recidivism is real in many cases for survival right mm -hmm. you know a lot of people wanting to go back to a sense of routine in jail because what they come out to and the abuse and discrimination that they face outside of jail is even worse anyway that's a different conversation here's what i want to get into Big, big talk these days about income or sorry, wealth redistribution in, in here in the U.S. I know you're you're mainly in Canada. There's, you know, the uh, Socialist Party coming out, the new, I forget the, why am I forgetting the term? DSA, Democrat Socialists of America coming out. Lots of, lots of power behind this party that purports to want to uh, better distribute wealth. And you come out of this experience of yours um, viewing wealth in a different way. And you believe that there should be basics provided for everyone, which in my mind, in layman's mind, seems eerily close to socialism. I want you to define what it is, having been through everything you've been through, that you think is the best way to give everybody a good shot at success. I don't know if it's socialism or not, but let me tell you what I think. Uh, you know, I think we're super entitled in our society. And we take certain things for granted in our society that some of us notice and some of us don't. We take for granted um, the, the right to security and integrity of the person, uh, to reasonable access to food, clothing and shelter, uh, to access to the tools of self-improvement, education, uh, access to the tools of health like medicine, uh, access to justice and access to basic finance. And finally, um, at least last but not least, access to a healthy environment. And we take all of those things for, for granted in our society. And, and my view of it is that we should, because I think as human beings, we're entitled to all of those things. Try as I might, I try to figure out, you know, what distinguishes us from others in the world who can't really say they're entitled to those things, like the starving lady in Somalia, um, you know, with a baby dying at her dusty breast, uh, you, you know, and try as I might, I can't find something to distinguish us from them. And I think if we're entitled to those things, and I think we are, then everybody is. And if everybody, if everybody is, we have a responsibility as people who are the beneficiaries of freedom to do what we can strive daily, if we can, to, um, you know, to, to make sure that we expand the, 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 the circle of that, um, of those fundamental rights. So if that's socialism, then I'm a socialist, right? But I'm, I don't think it is. I think, I think what, ha you know, you, you, there's, there's there's some mention about my feelings about capitalism in your introduction online, and that's a very interesting place to start this. I, you know, whatever it's going to take for us to fulfill those responsibilities to everybody in the world, money's really high on the list. We're going to have to be super wealthy. Well, but we are super wealthy already, and I don't think, um, and I, I don't think this is going to hurt wealth when we do what we do. I think it's going to include increase wealth. Uh, Why people so much with it then? And I'm speaking strictly to the United States right now. It's not a lack of wealth. It's certainly not a lack of reach of government. I mean, there's a position for everything these days. I think where Americans begin to feel frustrated, and this is where I, I really am going to value your experience as a private business owner. What every American begins to think is, yes, we're willing to give more, but if the government is going to take 75% of, this is just a number I'm throwing out there, of the, each dollar that I give, and it's going to go to to shit essentially, like to, uh, you know, management, not not to where it's supposed to go, right? Then what are we doing? There has yeah, to be on, a way. And that's I on us. What your better way is, um, is it a streamlining of the government process? Is uh, What can we do to get the money where it would actually be impactful? 
we have it's a, it, it's on us in the sense that we're sending those guys to Washington or to the state. You know, it's the, we're, we're we're the electorate. When we stay home and we say when we say we'd rather go mountain biking than go vote, now, now we're learning the lessons of what happens when you do that, right? And so I think what what you know we don't I th I think all all we need to let me say this: constitutional democracy has created the strongest tools ever invented by our species to control the selfish wealthy. Those tools are the powers to tax and, and to uh, regulate. And, you know, when we have elections, the, the selfish wealthy and the minions who make money off of them always show up. They always come out and vote. And those 30% come out and vote all the time. Uh, they know what's at stake. What's at stake is control of the powers to tax and to regulate. If we all showed up and voted and got the proper people elected, we would take full advantage of those of the, the, the levers of power over the powers to tax and regulate and uh, and apply them appropriately. When rich guys start whining to, well, you mentioned 75% tax. I mean, <laughs> if, if, if that were the case, it, it's not the case. Of every dollar we spend in taxes, like a ratio of what we're spending goes toward not toward, that's, that's what I would No, I'm saying, you know, I think I think what happens in the dialogue here, as you know, right around election time, always becomes um, these sort of quaint little idioms that we try to ask kids. Okay, so I'm going to give you two dollars, but you have to give one dollar to Mary standing next to you. Why? Just because the government? I don't think that's a good representation of what taxes represent, and therefore we end up really distorting the whole experience of what that money should should really go toward helping. But it's such a such a weird experience being an American right now, because if you're pro the programs that you're out supporting, you're a socialist. If you're anti, you're a rich asshole. Yeah. And there is no middle ground these days, which has become a frustrating point for, for many of us who live in the middle to try to come up with answers, because it always seems like the microphone is being passed to those two ends of the spectrum. Yeah, and and that's and that's part that's partly that's partly you guys, the media, right? Because you guys want to get eyeballs, right? And the way you get that is by being controversial, listen, right? And the more, stir the pot, right? In traditional media, now this show, and we're very deliberate about um, on this podcast bringing on people who who provoke people to think in different ways. But sure. um, I'm very moderate in pretty much every way possible. But you're right. I mean, the media stokes those flames. However, and this is another separate conversation, I don't think we can for very much longer pass the responsibility of intelligence and critical thinking off to Facebook and the media. Listen, you're an individual. You need to know that when you turn on the news after 7 p.m., Tucker Carlson is not giving you news. He's giving you opinion. You need to assume, not you personally, but the person needs to assume responsibility for understanding what they're consuming. There's this big drive to take down Facebook. I get it. Facebook sucks sometimes. However, what you need to do is train your brain to understand that when you scroll through things, it's not news or, you know, the critical mind has gone, which is the problem. And we can continue to try to regulate media, regulate social media, regulate all these outlets. And Unless it comes back to the individual responsibility of processing what you're consuming, I feel like it's all for naught and it's more money spent trying to censor these views that might help people understand things better. The most, important, the most important thing to promote is to discernment in the audience. And that, that you ed we educate people and, and teach them to be discerning about their their their, their information bases. But I, I want to say there is no shortage of wealth in the world and, and in America. 
And to do the things that I propose, just to do them in America, for instance, you know, um, for sure, uh, Elizabeth Warren's proposed wealth tax is way more than enough to do the job that I'm trying to talk about. You know, whatever it's going to cost to do in the world, it's not going to cost what military costs. And one of the most beautiful things about helping people, you know, generosity is that when we behave in a generous spirit, people don't bust our balls. You know, when we're when we when we help develop people, they want to they, they they take the lesson that we show them and they pass it on and they help develop other people too. We've worried about in our society for so long about you know growth. If we don't have growth, our economy is going to stagnate and we won't get anywhere. Well, eighty percent of the people on the planet don't have the things that we take for granted every day. And if we brought them to them, those people would become more what's the word productive. Yeah. When they become productive, they create more wealth. The more wealth they create, the more wealth there is in total. More by more people watching the net, net, you know, Netflix. More people making car, you know, selling cartoons, you know, whatever they do. And you know, wealth is basically infinite. And you know, when if we when after we after we develop the human resources in those other eighty percent on the planet, then start whining to me about growth. <laughs> in the meantime, just give it a try, you guys, and you're going to get rich super rich because because you know let me tell you this i think that hoarding is the wanking of wealth because it comes with no it comes with none of the other joys yeah. right the most profound joy of wealth is when you share it you get high for a while having a whole bunch of clothes in your closet that still have their price tags on it but it doesn't last long what it, the, the high that lasts forever is when you share and when you share you know, even just 500 bucks, you know, and then 15 years later, you run into a lady downtown and she says, you saved my life. And I go, what? <laughs> she said, you saved my life. You gave me 500 bucks when I couldn't make rent. Right. And, and, and people remember that forever and they pass it on and they do it, too. So I, I, I encourage people to be generous against regarding everybody except the selfish wealthy. Go out, vote, elect people who understand who should be in charge, right? And what they should be doing when they're in charge. And make sure that government spends your money responsibly. The worst thing that we can do right now is discourage young people from getting involved with the, um, you know, the institutions of constitutional democracy. Every time we say government can't do anything right, or every time they stick their hand in your pocket, they're robbing. That's what the selfish, wealthy, wealthy want you to think, so that you'll turn your backs on government and not vote and not come up. If because if we come out on mass, um, it will. America's in a position right now where they can actually end forever the 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 thumb on the scales of justice that is at the thumb of the selfish wealthy. You know, if we had seven, if seventy five percent of Americans came out and vote voted. Uh, that aren't conservative, it would they would be all over for those guys. the The reason that I the, the the proof that they fear the powers to tax and the powers to regulate is the extent to which they'll go to try to control them. And one of the things they do to try to control them is dissuade us from being involved in the, in, in the constitutional process. When every time we go out and vote, those guys quake because they see us coming and we're really, really close to being able to take it all back. And we'll, and people, we, we aren't gonna be sticking our hands in your pockets, but we are gonna be sticking your hands in the pockets of people like me. And you can, you know what? You can have not 2% of my money over $50 million. You can have 20% of it. 
I don't care because I know what's going to happen when we use that money properly. When we use that money properly to develop the human resources and everybody's treated fairly. Why do you think people hate the government? It's because the government doesn't treat them fairly. Treat people fairly and see what happens. I mean, it seems like a big ask. I don't think any person with a soul would be opposed to giving more knowing it was going to the right place. But when we see it going to lobbyists or to, like I said, <laughs> line the pockets of people that it wasn't intended for, it becomes a really frustrating catch-22. I want to ask you, John, specifically, what does an equitable, and I'm using that term kind of loosely, what does an equitable society look like to you based on your experience in the arena of the massively wealthy down to the bottom of the bottom? What does an equitable world look like and who is getting what and how does that look different from how it looks right now? I think um, if we did something like Elizabeth Warren proposed, we're a wealth tax, we would have uh, daycare for everybody, elder care for everybody, health care for everybody, uh, post-secondary education for everybody, same quality of education for everybody, give everybody the tools that they have to look after themselves, give everybody the tools that we have to look after ourselves, and this world will be a much more beautiful place. Adam Smith was right when he said, you know, quaintly, he called people men, but he said he, he, he thought men were basically good. And that if you turned men free, if you turned people free, uh, the good ones would look after the ones who were left fortunate. And there would be so many more of the good ones than, than the not good ones. That was a very, very generous uh, estimation of human spirit, of the human, of human nature. Uh, we've changed in America now. It's partly because of corporations, because corporations are neither good nor bad. They're kind of neutral, but they're not. They certainly don't do ethics. <laughs> but, you know, we've changed in America now to where, you know, when America was formed, we thought that, you know, people were good. Now, we think that if you give people 400 bucks for COVID, you're going to turn them into bums. That's yeah. not a very that generous estimation of human, of human nature. I agree. I'm like you. I, I want to and I do often see the best in people. And I pass a homeless person giving them money, knowing full well it might not go. To, it doesn't matter what I want them to spend it on. It's the gift is in the giving. I'm mm -hmm. with you on that. But the problem is, and I, I think, you know, I know this from speaking to multiple people who are who have been in the workforce since COVID, you know, has slowed things down. Yes, people may not take that $400 and spend it in the way that people think is the right way, whatever. But it is impacting the job economy or in impacting the economy in ways that people aren't looking for work now and that it's further stagnating things. So the frustration is, I'm sure for policymakers, when to give, when to stop to promote people getting back and seeking out jobs that will eventually keep the engine turning and how to know what's what. I think- hey, wait a minute though. Don't but, Wait a minute. You can't, you know, I can't let you get past that. People aren't going back to work, not because of they because they're getting free handouts. People are not going back to work because it's dangerous out there and they get sick. Well, we're in Florida. In Canada, in Canada we gave everybody $2,000 a month. Everybody got $2,000 a month in COVID. And, you know, people are going back to work in Canada. There's no going back to work problem. They're going back to work in Canada because it's not it's not unhealthy to go back to work in Canada. It's not. Uh, well, we're in Florida and, uh, you know, I obviously cannot speak anything but anecdotally. Um, it's not unhealthy. It's, it's not proving to be overly unhealthy 
more so than it was when the vaccine first came out, right? That we're seeing a relatively, like people aren't going back home from work is what I'm saying. They're back in person in Florida and the rate of that has not slowed. So whether or not the, the threat is real, which it is, people are responding in the same way. They're going back to work. Like we have butts and chairs in Florida. I know that Florida is different from much of the rest of the country. But my question is, how do you know when to stop the handout? How do you know when the handout ends up doing more damage? For example, when you're giving your child an allowance and they're not motivated to seek, it's a crude analogy, but work with me. They're not motivated to go get a job at 15 because they're getting $50 from mom every week. There is a line that it has to stop. And I'm curious when you think it's appropriate. Well, I think in you know giving giving people money because they can't work because of COVID is uh, extraordinary, and that and that's uh, that's a good thing to do. Keep people afloat so that they're uh, you know uh, all all hands on deck when it's time to go back to work. I think that's a smart thing to do. Uh, when your kid decides that they're entitled to allowance and they don't have to work, that's time to cut off their allowance. Right. right. How do you know I've, though? Right. You're dealing with millions of people and many with different political beliefs or philosophical beliefs. How do you know? Like if you say John is in charge for a day and takes over the government, when do you decide, okay, you know what? Here we are. We're in the current state of affairs with COVID. So things are as they are in reality. How does John decide, okay, this is where and I'm going to mark on the calendar that this starts to at least wind down. I feel very strongly that uh, 90% of people, when you give them money, are going to do the best they can for themselves and their family with it. And 10% of people are going to screw you for it. Maybe yeah. 15% of people. But that's not an excuse to not help the 85%, Sonny. Right, right. You know, we are not absolved of our responsibility to the 85% because we're going to be beaten by 15%. That's just an excuse to not help the 85%. Right. That's true. I, I believe in the good in people, but I think what people have experienced this past year has really disenchanted a lot of people. The political don't forget the things that I'm the things that I'm promoting to are not giving money away. The things that I'm promoting are giving people the basics. Right. Right. Giving people help. The basics for us, too, because I know you have that in your bio, but I'd like you to explain that to the audience. Well, I, I, I think I think everybody's entitled to, you know, um, access to food, clothing and shelter, you know, or reasonable access to food, clothing and shelter and, you know, to the tools of self-improvement and health and finance and justice. And that, you know, that you don't you're not giving people money when you when you develop those things. What you're doing is you're. You are making those institutions bigger because you need takes more people to pass out the wealth and the education and the health, right? But um, you know what what you're doing is you're giving people the tools that that you and I and ninety percent of the world take and do better by by ourselves with them, right? And I so we just uh, please, Sunny. I I just think we have to stop assuming people are going to be bad human bad you know you know but with these things take it for granted that some of them are going to beat us and take it for granted that if you treat people with respect they're going to act with integrity do you see things turning around for the better and us getting into it whether it's electing the proper set of you know officials government officials or people individual minds changing do you see progress toward a more equitable society in america well, america's going slowly <laughs> that way. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I think upward. You know, I mean, look, I mean, you know, these things are incremental, but they, they can't be incremental for too much longer because pretty soon it will be a catastrophe if we continue to think that the incrementalism is going to work. But right. let me, you know, we have now Joe Biden proposing stuff and getting it passed that 
you know, for instance, if Bernie Saunders was promoting it, it would never pass. How did that happen? Well, because the ideas are actually good ideas, right? And I think, you know, I, I, I think 10 years ago to, to think that the, the kinds of things that, um, you know, that Bernie Saunders was promoting were going to be mainstream uh, was, a, was a radical idea. And today it's reality. Right. So we're there is progress happening and we have to we have to embrace it and just make sure it's managed responsibly. Mostly what I mean by that is make sure that rich guys don't take advantage unto themselves. When Charles Koch was brought on the count on the on, on the carpet for, you know, dumping millions of tons of mercury into Love Canal and everywhere else. And then they may pay, I don't know, nine hundred million dollar fine or something like that. His quote on the way out of court was, and I thought we lived in a free country. Oh, geez. Well, there are now. That's are, where we need to police. That's where we need to police. Right there. I'm sure there are good, insanely wealthy people, too. Hopefully he's in the minority. I don't know. I've never been insanely wealthy. But I'd also like to think that people with access to that kind of capital and influence would be dedicating a big portion like you have of that to giving and charity and sort of making things more equitable. I mean, I hope that's the case, but I don't know. I've, like I said, I'm, here's a great question. Did money change you? I know you landed where you landed, which is in a good spot now, but when you were at the height of all that before the takedown, did it make you act in different ways? Does it take, I think people who aren't in that experience look at it almost like an animal in a zoo thinking, Oh God, what happens to these people when they get crazy rich? Do they lose their humanity somehow? I mean, it didn't, it, it, it helped, but not immediately. Immediately, it exacerbated everything. I was ridiculously generous and I was also ridiculously an asshole by, you know, just pushing people around and, you know, all of the sorts of, you don't notice it, but, you know, when you're in a private jet, <laughs> you, you, you just sort of you do what you want, sort of, right? I can do anything I want, can't I? Uh, well, you can if you're an asshole. But, the, <laughs> but so, I, you know, what... What money did do for me was gave me the opportunity to actually be as generous as I used to tell people that we should be. You know, it gave me an opportunity to put the money where my mouth is. And I found the results of it were just astonishingly rewarding. You know, you know, the the um, you know, the the, the the organizations that I benefited were, were so grateful and got such wonderful things going, uh, you know, in part with my help and um, the individuals that I helped think you know they think of me as a saint and i i you know i try to disabuse them of it by being more myself <laughs> i've done saintly things <laughs> I, I, I wrote i wrote it all in my book but i'm going to try i'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to live up to the things i wrote in my book that's the, that's that. the i love that okay oh i want to keep going i do have to ask you this though i do want to ask let me let me clarify this before the question comes out are you in are you a resident of canada or the u.s right now and where do you where do you pay taxes I, I pay taxes in Canada. I, I live on the west coast of Canada on an island called Salt Spring Island. It's about 50 miles from Vancouver out in the ocean. Oh, gorgeous part of the world, Vancouver. Yeah. Stunning and peaceful. Um, okay. Oh, this is, I wish I would have dug into this a little bit sooner. Anyhow, what does capitalism get wrong in your opinion? Because I think when people look at the monolith that is Western society, they kind of look at you guys in Canada and they're like, oh, that's like America light, right? But it's so different. As an outsider and witnessing our politics, witnessing the changes over the past several years and knowing what you know about how many changes things. What does capitalism in your mind get right and what does it get wrong? Capitalism gets everything right. The only thing that's wrong is our failure to regulate it properly. 
free free enterprise people well not free enterprise regulated enterprise but free ownership of the means of production is the is for sure the way to 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 develop everything the best the quickest for everybody what we need to do though is understand the response capitalism is a is a freedom freedoms come with responsibility the freedom of the responsibility of capitalism is to just to regulate capitalism properly so we need to encourage young people to get involved with government and cure capitalism of its illness by regulating it properly adam smith when he started out said that you know he he thought that we would be good corporations don't have corporations became legal persons a hundred years before women did and 200 years before black people did that's but, crazy yeah, that, but they that need to be they, they they need to have a moral basis, and the only way they can have a moral basis thrust upon them is by the power to regulate. Yeah, you know, as a born and raised American, it does it just and as as only a second generation, right? So my grandparents came to this country, and we went from nothing, no education, working every type of manual labor to first person in college per, to ever graduate college. So I understand the immigrant experience to an extent. And when I witnessed what my family did to push us forward and I see the fruits of capitalism, it kind of makes me disappointed when people just want to crap all over our, our system. And that's not you, me. What's that? No, that's I not me. Not you. I know that's not you. It's just, it seems like that's the cool thing to do in the U S sure. No, I agree. It's that's not that's not that's not particularly discerning. Capitalism is a wonderful tool, and but you blame you you you're, you're, we're a fool if we blame the tool, not not the carpenter. It goes exactly. It goes back to what we said about consumption of media and understanding your own perspective. A little inward reflection, a little critical thinking would do people wonders. I think it's so tempting to get out there with big opinions and big thoughts, but if we just became a little bit more aware of what we were saying sometimes before we said it, we would understand. That you know, it's, you can't always blame the system. We say things that sound like they're right, but you know, uh, they're, they're not, money is the root of all evil. You said that in my introduction. That, uh -huh. that sounds, that, that's, that, that's that thing Stephen Colbert calls truthiness. It sounds <laughs> like it's real, but it's not. It's not, uh -huh. right. you can actually fight for peace. Right. You know, when Hitler yeah. starts a war, there's only one way to bring peace, and that's why you can't fight, you can't fuck for virginity, excuse me, people, but that's just, <laughs> I never heard that before. <laughs> you can't. That what they say. I, the, 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 you know, fight, uh, fighting for peace is like making love for virginity. Yeah. They, they say that. It sounds like it makes sense, but it's not. It doesn't. You know. So it, a lot of these things sound like that. We have to be discerning. Listen to me a little bit more carefully and say, well, wait a minute, that's not right. right. <laughs> John, I want to keep you on for another half hour. I got to go pick up my kid at school. Um, let's talk about your book and tell everybody where we can track down some more of your work. I know you are prolific. In the creative space, we mentioned your book. We also mentioned you recorded some music. So give us various outlets where we can track you down. JohnLafave.com. Um, don't don't even try to spell it. Just look on, on Sunny's site and she'll spell it <laughs> properly, I'm sure. Um, JohnLafave.com has my two books and all of the songs that I've ever recorded. Uh, they, they're also, the song, the music is also on all the streaming services now too. I've, I've grown up on, I've grown into the 21st century in music. My two books, uh, one of them is the story of my rags to riches. I engaged uh, Carrie Gold to help write that. Um, she was uh, um, a journalist in Canada, is a journalist in Canada. Um, I say at the beginning of my other book, All's Well, Where Thou Art Earth and Why, 
that uh, everybody wanted me to write a book about my story because it's so you know ast astonishing and um but i got very quickly tired i grew tired of writing sentences that start with i and end with me i wanted to write something that was more important um if i only write one book in my life it was <laughs> going to be an important one also well where thou art earth and why is what i where my estimation of what the human species is in the universe what we are how far we've come how far we've got to go the principles that we will adopt if we want to continue the advance the advance of civilization um it's uh, part it's partly a gonzo book and it's partly quite dry and legal but you know if you get through to the end of it it becomes uh, wildly mystical and really really stoned so you know it's it's a trip <laughs> i'm into it john i love a good vibe like that all right as we as we part ways I have truly, truly enjoyed your wisdom and your perspective. So first of all, thank you. But if you could leave us with one of the philosophies, whether it's a sentence or a thought or even a reference to a book that helps keep you grounded and keep your heart where it needs to be in this crazy world. That magnificent thing within us all that makes us all the same, you and I and the lady in Somalia, that magnificent thing, that magnificent thing that dreams at night when we're asleep, does not go to sleep when we wake up. It's there with us every moment. Sit still for half an hour a day and let that part of us be alive again. It's the human consciousness is profoundly discerning, infinitely creative. And if we let it be, rather than worrying about, you know, I've got a golf game at nine, I've got to get you know, my, my vacant friends coming over, so I got to get some food for, no, no. For treat those things like unwanted guests, guests who have, have, you know, clients who don't have an appointment. And for half an hour a day, allow that part of us that dreams at night to be awake in the daytime and see what comes of it. Just watch. We have one hell of a computer behind our eyes. And when we let it go, this world is going to be a wonderful, much more wonderful place. Ah, amen. John, you are speaking to my soul. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm so glad we got past our technical problems to do this. Um, you're amazing, and I'm grateful for your time. So thank you again so, so much for coming on the show today. Attention is one of the most valuable things we can pay in our society, and you've just given me a full serving. So thanks very much. Well, likewise to you, to our audience. So we're grateful. John, hope to connect again soon. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to and or watching this episode of We Gotta Talk. Just a quick reminder, if you're listening to the podcast version of this, come on over and join us on video. We do this live at noon Eastern every Wednesday, so you are able to leave live questions for the guests and we can get them answered in real time. If you're listening to the podcast, please do take a minute, tap those five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I beg of you, that actually helps these interviews to get out to anyone who might find them useful or interesting, or in this case, life-changing. I feel like my life was a little bit changed by our conversation with John. Um, thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week with more good stuff right here on We Gotta Talk. Bye.